Chapter One, Part Two of The Sorceress of the Strand by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Madame Sarah, Part Two. When we got into the street and were driving back again to Eaton Square, I turned to Edith. Many things puzzle me about your friend, I said, but perhaps none more than this. By what possible means can a woman who owns to being the possessor of a shop obtain the entree to some of the best houses in London? Why does society open her doors to this woman, Miss Dallas? I cannot quite tell you, was her reply. I only know the fact that wherever she goes she is welcomed and treated with consideration, and wherever she fails to appear there is universally expressed feeling of regret. I had also been invited to Lady Farringdon's reception that evening, and I went there in a state of great curiosity. There was no doubt that Madame interested me. I was not sure of her. Beyond doubt there was a mystery attached to her, and also, for some unaccountable reason, she wished both to propitiate and defy me. Why was this? I arrived early, and was standing in the crush near the head of the staircase when Madame was announced. She wore the richest white satin, and quantities of diamonds. I saw her hostess bend towards her and talk eagerly. I noticed Madame's reply, and the pleased expression that crossed Lady Farringdon's face. A few minutes later a man with a foreign-looking face and long beard sat down before the grand piano. He played a light prelude, and Madame Sarah began to sing. Her voice was sweet and low, with an extraordinary pathos in it. It was the sort of voice that penetrates the heart. There was an instant pause in the gay chatter. She sang amidst perfect silence, and when the song had come to an end there followed a furor of applause. I was just turning to say something to my nearest neighbor, when I observed Edith Dallas, who was standing close by. Her eyes met mine. She laid her hand on my sleeve. "'The room is hot,' she said, half panting as she spoke. "'Take me out on the balcony.' I did so. The atmosphere of the reception-rooms was almost intolerable, but it was comparatively cool in the open air. "'I must not lose sight of her,' she said suddenly. "'Of whom?' I asked, somewhat astonished at her words. "'Of Sarah.' "'She is there,' I said. "'You can see her from where you stand.' We happened to be alone. I came a little closer. "'Why are you afraid of her?' I asked. "'Are you sure that we cannot be heard?' was her answer. "'She terrifies me,' were her next words. "'I will not betray your confidence, Miss Dallas. Will you not trust me? You ought to give me a reason for your fears.' "'I cannot. I dare not. I have said far too much already. Don't keep me, Mr. Druce. She must not find us together.' As she spoke she pushed her way through the crowd, and before I could stop her was standing by Madame Sarah's side. The reception in Portland Place was, I remember, on the 26th of July. Two days later the Selbys were to give their final at home, before leaving for the country. I was, of course, invited to be present, and Madame was also there. She had never been dressed more splendidly, nor had she ever before looked younger or more beautiful. Wherever she went all eyes followed her. As a rule her dress was simple almost like what a girl would wear. But to-night she chose rich oriental stuffs made of many colors, and absolutely glittering with gems. Her golden hair was studded with diamonds. Round her neck she wore turquoise and diamonds mixed. There were many younger women in the room, but not the youngest nor the fairest had a chance beside Madame. It was not mere beauty of appearance, it was charm, charm which carries all before it. I saw Miss Dallas, looking slim and tall and pale, standing at a little distance. I made my way to her side. Before I had time to speak, she bent towards me. 
"'Is she not divine?' she whispered. "'She bewilders and delights every one. She is taking London by storm.' "'Then you are not afraid of her to-night?' I said. "'I fear her more than ever. She has cast a spell over me. But listen, she is going to sing again.' I had not forgotten the song that Madame had given us at the Farringdons, and stood still to listen. There was a complete hush in the room. Her voice floated over the heads of the assembled guests in a dreamy Spanish song. Edith told me that it was a slumber song, and that Madame boasted of her power of putting almost anyone to sleep who listened to her rendering of it. "'She has many patients who suffer from insomnia,' whispered the girl, "'and she gently cures them with that song and that alone. Ah, we must not talk. She will hear us.' Before I could reply, Selby came hurrying up. He had not noticed Edith. He caught me by the arm. "'Come just for a moment into this window, Dixon,' he said. "'I must speak to you. I suppose you have no news with regard to my brother-in-law?' "'Not a word,' I answered. "'To tell you the truth, I am getting terribly put out over the matter. We cannot settle any of our money affairs just because this man chooses to lose himself. My wife's lawyers wired to Brazil yesterday, but even his bankers do not know anything about him.' "'The whole thing is a question of time,' was my answer. "'When are you off to Hampshire?' "'On Saturday.' As Selby said the last words, he looked around him. Then he dropped his voice. "'I want to say something else. The more I see,' he nodded towards Madame Sarah, "'the less I like her. Edith is getting into a very strange state. Have you not noticed it? And the worst of it is, my wife is also infected. I suppose it is that dodge of the woman's for patching people up and making them beautiful. Doubtless the temptation is overpowering in the case of a plain woman, but Beatrice is beautiful herself and young.' What can she have to do with cosmetics and complexion pills? You don't mean to tell me that your wife has consulted Madame Sarah as a doctor? Not exactly, but she has gone to her about her teeth. She complained of toothache lately, and Madame's dentistry is renowned. Edith is constantly going to her for one thing or another, but then Edith is infatuated. As Jack said the last words, he went over to speak to someone else, and before I could leave the seclusion of the window, I perceived Edith Dallas and Madame Sarah in earnest conversation together. I could not help overhearing the following words. "'Don't come to me to-morrow. Get into the country as soon as you can. It is far and away the best thing to do.' As Madame spoke, she turned swiftly and caught my eyes. She bowed, and the peculiar look, the sort of challenge she had given me before, flashed over her face. It made me uncomfortable, and during the night that followed I could not get it out of my head. I remembered what Selby had said with regard to his wife and her money affairs. Beyond doubt he had married into a mystery, a mystery that Madame knew all about. There was a very big money interest, and strange things happen when millions are concerned. The next morning I had just risen and was sitting at breakfast when a note was handed to me. It came by special messenger, and was marked urgent. I tore it open. These were the contents. My dear Druce, a terrible blow has fallen on us. My sister-in-law, Edith, was suddenly taken ill this morning at breakfast. The nearest doctor was sent for, but he could do nothing, as she died half an hour ago. Do come and see me. And if you know any very clever specialist, bring him with you. My wife is utterly stunned by the shock. Yours, Jack Selby. I read the note twice, before I could realize what it meant. Then I rushed out, and hailing the first handsome I met, said to the man, "'Drive to number 192 Victoria Street as quickly as you can.' Here lived a certain Mr. Eric Vandeleur, an old friend of mine, and the police surgeon for the Westminster District, which included Eaton Square. 
No shrewder or sharper fellow existed than Vandeleur, and the present case was essentially in his province, both legally and professionally. He was not at his flat when I arrived, having already gone down to the court. Here I accordingly hurried, and was informed that he was in the mortuary. For a man who, as it seemed to me, lived in a perpetual atmosphere of crime and violence, of death and coroner's courts, his habitual cheerfulness and brightness of manner were remarkable. Perhaps it was only the reaction from his work, for he had the reputation of being one of the most astute experts of the day in medical jurisprudence, and the most skilled analyst in toxicological cases on the Metropolitan Police Staff. Before I could send him word that I wanted to see him, I heard a door bang, and Vandeleur came hurrying down the passage, putting on his coat as he rushed along. "'Helloa!' he cried. "'I haven't seen you for ages. Do you want me?' "'Yes, very urgently,' I answered. "'Are you busy?' "'Head over heels, my dear chap. I cannot give you a moment now, but perhaps later on.' "'What is it? You look excited.' "'I have to get to Eaton Square like the wind. But come along, if you like, and tell me on the way.' "'Capital!' I cried. "'The thing has been reported, then. You are going to Mr. Selby's, number 34A. Then I am going with you.' He looked at me in amazement. "'But the case has only just been reported. What can you possibly know about it?' "'Everything. Let us take this hansom, and I will tell you as we go along.' As we drove to Eaton Square, I quickly explained the situation, glancing now and then at Vandeleur's bright, clean-shaven face. He was no longer Eric Vandeleur, the man with the latest club story and the merry twinkle in his blue eyes. He was Vandeleur the medical jurist, with a face like a mask, his lower jaw slightly protruding, and features very fixed. "'The thing promises to be serious,' he replied, as I finished. "'But I can do nothing until after the autopsy. Here we are, and there is my man waiting for me. He has been smart.' On the steps stood an official-looking man in uniform, who saluted. "'Coroner's officer,' explained Vandeleur. We entered the silent, darkened house. Selby was standing in the hall. He came to meet us. I introduced him to Vandeleur, and he at once led us into the dining-room, where we found Dr. Osborne, whom Selby had called in when the alarm of Edith's illness had first been given. Dr. Osborne was a pale, undersized, very young man. His face expressed considerable alarm. Vandeleur, however, managed to put him completely at his ease. "'I will have a chat with you in a few minutes, Dr. Osborne,' he said. "'But first I must get Mr. Selby's report. Will you please tell me, sir, exactly what occurred?' "'Certainly,' he answered. We had a reception here last night, and my sister-in-law did not go to bed until early morning. She was in bad spirits, but otherwise in her usual health. My wife went into her room after she was in bed, and told me later on that she had found Edith in hysterics, and could not get her to explain anything. We both talked about taking her to the country without delay. Indeed, our intention was to get off this afternoon. Well, said Vandeleur, we had breakfast about half-past nine, and Miss Dallas came down, looking quite in her usual health, and in apparently good spirits. She ate with appetite, and as it happened, she and my wife were both helped from the same dish. The meal had nearly come to an end, when she jumped up from the table, uttered a sharp cry, turned very pale, pressed her hand to her side, and ran out of the room. My wife immediately followed her. She came back again in a minute or two, and said that Edith was in violent pain, and begged of me to send for a doctor. Dr. Osborne lives just round the corner. He came at once, but she died almost immediately after his arrival. "'You were in the room?' said Vandeleur, turning to Osborne. "'Yes,' he replied. "'She was conscious to the last moment, and died suddenly.' "'Did she tell you anything?' "'No. 
except to assure me that she had not eaten any food that day until she had come down to breakfast. After the death occurred, I sent immediately to report the case, locked the door of the room where the poor girl's body is, and saw also that nobody touched anything on this table. Vandeleur rang the bell, and a servant appeared. He gave quick orders. The entire remains of the meal were collected and taken charge of, and then he and the coroner's officer went upstairs. When we were alone, Selby sank into a chair. His face was drawn and haggard. "'It is the horrible suddenness of the thing which is so appalling,' he cried. "'As to Beatrice, I don't believe she will ever be the same again. She was deeply attached to Edith. Edith was nearly ten years her senior, and always acted the part of mother to her. This is a sad beginning to our life. I can scarcely think collectedly.' I remained with him a little longer, and then, as Vandeleur did not return, went back to my own house. There I could settle to nothing, and when Vandeleur rang me up on the telephone about six o'clock, I hurried off to his rooms. As soon as I arrived, I saw that Selby was with him, and the expression on both their faces told me the truth. "'This is a bad business,' said Vandeleur. "'Miss Dallas has died from swallowing poison. An exhaustive analysis and examination have been made.' and a powerful poison, unknown to European toxicologists, has been found. This is strange enough, but how it has been administered is a puzzle. I confess, at the present moment, we are all nonplussed. It certainly was not in the remains of the breakfast, and we have her dying evidence that she took nothing else. Now, a poison with such appalling potency would take effect quickly. It is evident that she was quite well when she came to breakfast, and that the poison began to work towards the close of the meal. But how did she get it? This question, however, I shall deal with later on. The more immediate point is this. The situation is a serious one in view of the monetary issues and the value of the lady's life. From the aspects of the case, her undoubted sanity and her affection for her sister, we may almost exclude the idea of suicide. We must, therefore, call it murder. This harmless, innocent lady is struck down by the hand of an assassin, and with such devilish cunning that no trace or clue is left behind. For such an act there must have been some very powerful motive, and the person who designed and executed it must be a criminal of the highest order of scientific ability. Mr. Selby has been telling me the exact financial position of the poor lady, and also of his own young wife. The absolute disappearance of the stepbrother in view of his previous character is in the highest degree strange. Knowing, as we do, that between him and two million sterling there stood two lives, one is taken." A deadly sensation of cold seized me as Vandeleur uttered these last words. I glanced at Selby. His face was colourless, and the pupils of his eyes were contracted, as though he saw something which terrified him. "'What happened once may happen again,' continued Vandeleur. "'We are in the presence of a great mystery, and I counsel you, Mr. Selby, to guard your wife with the utmost care.' These words, falling from a man of Vandeleur's position and authority on such matters, were sufficiently shocking for me to hear, but for Selby to be given such a solemn warning about his young and beautiful and newly married wife, who was all the world to him, was terrible indeed. He leant his head on his hands. "'Mercy on us!' he muttered. "'Is this a civilized country, when death can walk abroad like this, invisible, not to be avoided? Tell me, Mr. Vandeleur, what I must do.' "'You must be guided by me,' said Vandeleur, "'and, believe me, there is no witchcraft in the world.' I shall place a detective in your household immediately. Don't be alarmed. He will come to you in plain clothes, and will simply act as a servant. Nevertheless, 
Nothing can be done to your wife without his knowledge. As to you, Druce, he continued, turning to me, the police are doing all they can to find this man Silva, and I ask you to help them with your big agency and to begin at once. Leave your friend to me. Wire instantly if you hear news. You may rely on me, I said, and a moment later I had left the room. End of Part 2 of Chapter 1